The following audio was recorded at Stone Oak Bible Church. For more information about our church or for more resources, visit us at stoneoakbible.com. Well, good morning. I, uh, I hope you're doing well. I really do. Um, if you do have your Bibles with you, we are going to be in Revelation 2. And as always, if you don't have a Bible, um, we'd love to either lend you one or give you one. So if you are here, you don't have a Bible with you, there should be a hardback black or blue one somewhere near you. Grab that one. You can follow along with us there. Uh, if you're here you don't, and you don't own one, um, find one around you and take it. Just keep it. You don't have to let us know. We would love to uh, uh, give you a Bible this morning. As I said, we're in Revelation 2, and, and we are three weeks in. Uh, actually, to state it better, we are three churches in to a look at seven churches over this seven weeks. And we arrive this morning at church number three. The first church, if you weren't with us, was the church of Ephesus. And this church that we saw right at the beginning of, of, of um, Revelation 2 is a church that was patiently doing great things in ministry. They were faithfully defending doctrine. But Jesus looks at this church and says, you've abandoned your first love. And what he does right here in this moment um, is he then calls them to remember, to repent, and to return to doing the things that you did at the beginning. That was church number one. Church number two was last week. We looked at Smyrna. This church, um, very different church, a persecuted church, a church that faced opposition, slander, tribulation, and even death because of the gospel. And to this church, Jesus, just in compassion, just tells them, church, I see you. I'm here. I see you. Be faithful. Do not be afraid and be faithful even unto death. And last week, what we, what we saw is the gospel just kind of lifted our eyes up from the here and now and, and reminded us of our promise of eternal and abundant life. That was last week. Now, we come to church number three. This church is going to be very very uh, different than the first two. Here's my theory. Um, we were definitely able to relate to the first two churches. In other words, we could see ourselves in so many ways as we walked through the first two churches. I believe that. I, I felt that as we walked through. But here's the, here's the thing. The church today that we are looking at here in many ways will most cleanly represent much of what we see in the American church. Now, we see ourselves again in, in the others, but, but as we look at this church, we are going to see more clean lines. Um, and I hope, I, 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 hear me, I know that the church in America, we are diverse. I know that there are faithful churches on American soil. I praise God for that. I pray that we will be that, I pray that we will continue to ch plant churches that are that. So when I say this, just hear me, I know I'm painting in a, just big old broad brush strokes. Um, I know it's a bit of a caricature. 
Uh, and, and I hope, I hope though, that as we walk through this, even if you don't agree with my caricature, that's okay, because my goal is not to condemn out there, but to be able to see ourselves in here and reflect on ourselves. Um, so this morning, church number three is the church in a city called Pergamum. Uh, Pergamum is, is a, a church, listen, ultimately it's a church of compromise. It's a church of compromise. So I want to read our text this morning, and then we'll pray together, and then we'll get to work, okay? So Revelation chapter 2, verse 12, it says this, And, and to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, The words of him who has a sharp two-edged sword, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Yet you hold fast to my name, and, and you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness who was killed among you, again, where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so they might eat food, sacrificed idols, and practice sexual immorality. So also, you have some who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore, repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. Let's pray together. Lord, God, thank you uh, for your word. Even in the reading of this text, I am so aware of my need for your grace and your mercy. And I, I thank you for your unending grace and mercy. I thank you for calling us back as we wander. I thank you for forgiving us. I thank you for the love that you demonstrated for us in and through Jesus Christ on the cross. Lord, as we look at your word this morning, I believe that you're going to speak to us. I believe that you have been and are working on our hearts through your spirit. I pray that we would be open. I pray that we would listen and receive. I pray that you would search us. I pray that you would give us the ability to see ourselves through your eyes more clearly. Would you examine us? And would you give us the ability to examine ourselves, our church, in light of your word this morning? We thank you, God. We, we bless this time. In the name of Jesus, amen. 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 All right. So right out of the gate, uh, you might have noticed there's a different tone to this church than there was the first two. Uh, if, if you don't believe me, just look at verse one of the church of Ephesus. It says, to the angel of the church in Ephesus, to him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven lampstands, as we talked about is we remember this is basically Jesus saying, listen, church, I'm with you. I hold your pastors in my hand. I'm walking with you. That's awesome. Second church, we read to the angel of Smyrna write um, the words of the first and the last who died and came to life. So Jesus is basically saying, church, church, remember the resurrection. Remember that I conquered death, with, which is exactly what you're going to do in me. This is this encouragement. Um, so, so it's great, right? It's, it's so good. But then, ver- and then church three happens. 
And we read verse 12 to the angel of Pergamum write, the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. It's a different tone here. It's a different tone. This is a statement of power. This is a statement that says, just as brief as I can make this, Christ is the judge. I am the judge, says Christ to this church. Um, And Christ is the one who wields that ultimate power. It's Christ and Christ alone. And he turns then, after giving them that word, he turns now to the city and he says to Pergamum, I know where you dwell, um, where Satan's throne is. Ouch. Like, I I don't, ouch. Um, So let's talk a little bit about this city. This city we do have the privilege of knowing quite a bit about. This was a a city, uh, it was a capital city. It was a cultural hub. Uh, It was also known as as a hub of paganism, actually. Uh, There was a, a, in in the city, there's idols and, and monuments dedicated to these little G gods everywhere. And, and one of the most popular was the one to Zeus, actually. The, the temple of Zeus here, the, the monument, it was built in an altar in the Acropolis. Huge. It was 100 square feet, 40 feet high. And it was surrounded by other uh, statues of other gods. Like, this is just the jam. This is what you expect from Pergamum. Like, this is Pergamum right here. City of Satan. That's, this is a real city doing real things. And, and it was a hub of paganism. And, and I say all this to say, we don't need to go too much deeper to really get the point here. To be Christian was to stand out in the city of Pergamum. This, the popular culture was not Christian. To be Christian will run you in direct opposition with the culture around you in the city where Satan dwells. Um, to be Christian was costly. It was already costly. To be Christian was to stand out. It doesn't matter how nice you are. To be Christian is to stand out like a sore thumb. Um, now, uh, last week we saw in Smyrna that, that the church faced persecution, but the, 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 what we see here is a little different because in last week, the persecution, Jesus was warning of a season of trial to come. But as we read in Pergamum, they had already faced trial. They had already faced persecution. To be a follower of Jesus in the city of Satan is hard. It's hard. And so they had already faced martyrdom in this church. We, we read in verse 13 that they hold fast to his name. Yet you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you. There was a martyr already in this church for following Jesus here. They had already been through it. And, and I, I want you, you don't need to do this literally, but in your mind to highlight something. It's this phrase, yet you hold fast to my name. So just take a mental note here of that little phrase. It's really important. They, remember this, they held fast to the name of Jesus. Remember this line. Because this church who lived um, in a city contrary to Jesus, a city contrary to the gospel, who lived in the city of Satan, held fast to the name of Jesus. We need to remember that. It's going to come up later. Uh, But there's a but. And it comes to us just like in Ephesus. If you remember, but I have a few things against you. Here we are again. And in Pergamum, we see it in verse 14. But. 
but I have a few things against you. Now, let's take this in. It says this, you have some there who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak how to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, that they're gonna eat food sacrificed to idols, practice sexual immorality, and there are some who even hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Now, um, you may be unfamiliar with these names. Like right now, you might not know any Nicolaitans running around. This might not mean anything to you. Chances are it, it doesn't with the Nicolaitans. Um, but there's something here for us to, to see. There was a wandering that was taking place in this church. There was a, a compromise taking place. There was a reference to Balaam and Balak. Listen, I, all transparency here. I got super distracted this week in my study for this sermon because I flipped back to numbers and got lost. Um, so I'm gonna not get lost for us here. I'm gonna do my best to just, I'm gonna get us here. Um, but this text is incredible. It is incredible. Um, I'm not gonna have time to read it all, but I wanna encourage you, if you're like me and wanna get lost a little bit, it's Numbers 22. Numbers 22, 23, 24, 25, and uh, a little bit in 31. I think that'll get you. Um, but it's, it's phenomenal. Here's what we find in this story. It's so important. This, this just tells us everything. It unlocks everything in Revelation. Um, we have a king named Balak. He was the king of Moab, and he has a problem. His problem was the Israelites. He was afraid of them. He was uh, the people of God. He was concerned about them, and he wanted to overtake them. King Balak wants to overtake the children of Israel. So he sends for a prophet. He wants to find a guy that can kind of get God on his side. It's always a good idea to have God on your side. So he wants to get God on his side to, to deal with this problem. So he finds a prophet, kind of, named Balaam. And, and Balaam, listen, he starts out good. So King Balak wants Balaam to curse Israel. Okay? And Balaam steps up to the plate multiple times to curse Israel and does nothing but bless them. Like, that's kind of cool. And it's not what Balak wanted. But he steps up and he delivers a blessing, like three different times. Uh, real, real frustrating. Um, but here's the deal. He couldn't do anything else. I mean, he's a prophet. He's there to be a mouthpiece for God. So he's not going to, he, he was there not to speak his own agenda. He was there to give God's word. And, and God was not cursing them, so he didn't curse them. So far, Balaam is like, I read him, I'm like, good, good dude, right? Um, he wouldn't put words in the Lord's mouth. But here's the deal. We fast forward a little bit. And uh, we get, especially into chapter 25, and what happens in so many ways is worse. It's just worse. In Numbers 25, the people of God began to intermingle and to compromise. They begin to marry foreign women and accept foreign gods and take on foreign practices. They begin to, with the Moabites, right? That's, that's what happens here. They begin to assimilate, to take on the ways, to take on the values, to take on the customs. They begin to do this. And so you've, you've heard that saying, if you can't beat them, join them. Well, here, Balak 
if you can't beat them, just wait because they're going to join you. That's what happens to God's people in Numbers 25. Balaam seemed really solid at first. He really did. Um, He would not curse the Israelites. But here's what he did. He led Balak, the king, in a way to successfully come against Israel. And it wasn't through curse or sword. It was through compromise. It was through compromise. Um, Hold on, I'll get to this in a second. I'll get to this one in a second. Um, but the Lord is, is a little bit later in, in chapter 31. He is bringing a judgment on the five kings of Moabites. And guess who's included in that judgment? Balaam. Balaam. And I read it and I wondered, what? Uh, uh, here's the deal, though. He's responsible for the compromise. And, and he helped lead a whole people astray, not through sword, not through famine, not through curse, not from fire from the sky, but through deadly and subtle compromise. This quote is from David Jeremiah. He says, whatever Satan cannot curse or crush, he seeks to corrupt through compromise. This church is exactly what the people of God faced in the book of Numbers. This is exactly what they were facing. This is exactly what the church was facing in Pergamum. And I want to call something out real quick. So our enemy is crafty, right? We, we, we know that. But here's the deal. He might be crafty, but he tends to use the same tricks over and over and over and over and over and over again. He has the same tools. This is still primary in his playbook, And as I look out, I think like Numbers, like Pergamum, this is exactly what we face as the church of America. If we look at our text here, it says, you have some who hold to the teaching of Balaam. What teaching was that? It was the teaching of compromise. In our text, Jesus says, it was Balaam who taught King Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel. What was that stumbling block? Compromise. So they may eat their food and practice their ways, be about them. Like the prophet Balaam, it was him who taught King Balak to lead the sons of Israel to their own destruction. Not through war, but through compromise, through enticing them, through getting them to blur lines. To blur lines. And here's the deal even if it was still done under the banner or in the name of Jesus. Let's add one more verse to the mess here. Verse 15, you have some teaching, holding to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Um, Listen, we don't have a book or writings that tell us here exactly what the Nicolaitans taught and believed. We don't know what they practiced, even where they came from. Um, We just don't have a lot of background for these people. Here's the, the three things we know. Uh, one, their teachings were spreading all over the ancient world. We know this. We actually saw it earlier in Revelation 2 as the church in Ephesus were dealing with this same group. So we knew it was spreading. Number two is we knew that the church was commended for hating and defending against them. So if you look in verse six, it says, yet you have this. You forgot your first love, but you have this. You hate the work of the Nicolaitans. 
Jesus commends this church for coming against them. So, so we, we, we know that, that it is spreading. We know that the church of Ephesus is faithfully defending against it. And then the third thing we know is that God hated the works of the Nicolaitans and the beliefs of the Nicolaitans. Because he, he says right there in verse six, yet you have this, you hate the works of the Nicolaitans. What? Which I also hate. So we're, clear, we're pretty clear on what we need to be clear on when we come to the Nicolaitans. But here in Pergamum, the same group that God hated and opposed had infiltrated the church. So in verse 15, he says, there are some who hold to the teachings. Unlike Ephesus, who pushed a bat back against it, you embrace it, you compromised, you've been enticed by the culture, pulled and swayed. So let's come back to the word that I had you mentally highlight. Yet you hold fast to my name. Okay, I want us to be really clear on what we're seeing in this church. Pergamum still held to the banner of Jesus. They still held to the name of Jesus. So here is what we are seeing here. We are seeing a church who still clung to Jesus' name. Who still said, yes, I go to church. Yes, I still believe in Jesus. Yes, I do this whole Jesus thing. I still do that. Yet, we see a church who looked just like the world around them. And they did it all in the name of Jesus. The church who did what the world did, and they did it all in the name of Jesus. That quote, whatever Satan can't crush or curse, he seeks to compromise or seeks to corrupt through compromise. This is it. Listen, I, I, uh, the church, American church is, is not often like the church in um, Iran or China, parts of Africa, these communities where people are facing death, literally today, facing death for what they believe in Jesus. I am grateful, by the way, for the freedom to open the word of God and to come around it. Don't hear me wrong. We would be crazy to say, long for persecution. That is not what I am saying. I am grateful for the chance to teach this. Yet time and time and time and time and time again throughout history, here's what we see. The church stands when she's persecuted. The church endures. In fact, persecution does nothing but to fan the flames. Time and time again, history shows us that in the face of persecution, more people come to know Jesus, more churches are planted, and the flame, whoo, what happens is the church rises. She stands, she endures. We see this time and time again throughout history because Jesus promised, hey, the gates of hell, they're not going to prevail. They will not prevail against us. Here's the reality, though. The American church, while I'm grateful, does not look like that. We do not face, we do face opposition. Do not hear me wrong. We face that. There's no doubt about that. But our, our opposition is less like Smyrna and a lot more like Pergamum. Whatever Satan can't crush, curse. He's going to corrupt through compromise. 
In so many ways, as I look over the landscape, I think our battle, our temptation, is that we would be a church that looks like the world around us, that we would um, believe what they believe, value what they value, that we would fear what they fear, that, that we would spend our money the way they spend their money, that we would organize our lives the way they organize theirs, that we would value, our values would be in alignment like the people of, of Israel in numbers that we would intermingle, like the church in Pergamum, Pergamum that we would assimilate right in. I think this is, this is our persecution. This is our trial. This is the enemy that we are battling as the church here. In reality, we wouldn't use this language, but our struggle is to worship what the world worships. So cut right through it. Our struggle, this is a worship thing. This is an idolatry thing. Our struggle, our battle is to be wooed into worshiping what they call God. And as our churches look just like the world, you know what happens? When the lost come to our churches, everything they see looks exactly like what they came from. That stinks. If we begin to forget our identity, our distinctiveness, what we become is kind of a weird mirror that when they look at us, they roughly see themselves. We're just imaging themselves back to them. Reflecting back. When we believe the lie that we need to become like the world in order to win the world, we fail to see that we're not winning the world, but that we've been won by the world. When we drive to want to become relevant, we don't understand that we're becoming irrelevant. And, and it just, how will they hear and see something different if we're no different? And I, I don't want to encourage you to be weirdos, Okay. <laughs> I don't want us to be weirdos for the sake of being weirdos. It's not what I'm getting at. What I'm getting at, though, is that you have a chief distinctive identity. So I'm not saying be weird because you're rude, you're aggressive, you're, you're, you're out of touch, you, you don't like good music or whatever. Like, that's not, don't, no. What I'm, what I'm saying is chiefly at your core, you have a new identity. You have a new identity. You are called to be in this world, but not of it. Light in the dark, city on a hill, all of this language. And I want us to think through something here together as we put all this together. Okay, we're, we're, we're probably more used to compromise than we probably think. All of us. I think we can be big boys and girls and, and confess that. Um, but here's the deal. In our world right now, as we engage this, really, this, this real temptation, um, we have a tendency, I think, to run in one of three different directions. So can you put up that first one? So we have a tendency to go one of three directions. And, and the first one is what I'm going to call the cultural option. So let me just describe my, my imagery here. So when we come to know Jesus, we're changed. We're no longer green. I represent this in the fact that we are now the bathroom figure of a white stick figure, okay? Um, but that's us. This is us in Jesus. The cultural option. See, what it does is it just walks with the culture. 
And all of a sudden, we start to lose a little bit of our color. And all of a sudden, we find ourselves looking around, and there's a full-blown compromise that has taken over. We are full-blown cultural. We, we forget that we are really Christian. And, and when we get to this point, Jesus and church and all this stuff, it might be something we still connected to, kind of like Pergamum, all in the name of Jesus. Um, but it's nothing that makes a real significant impact. It's kind of, we are, we are worldly. So in option number one, we think about the church, the culture in the church. In option number one, what happens is the culture looks at the church and says, come on over. Come on over. The water is warm. Come on over. And in this option, um, when the culture encounters the church, it is encountering itself. That's one option for us. Let's go to option number two. Option number two is a little different. I'm going to call it the subcultural option. Uh, this is when we, we run into culture. We kind of like the things they do, but we need to staple some Jesus on it. We need to Jesus-fy it just a little bit. We need to take, we like their music, so take it, put Jesus in it. It's ours. We, uh, we, we like their stuff. Take it. Staple Jesus. It's ours. Um, so in this option, we see and we like the world's stuff. And so what we try to do is create a subculture that goes right, be- right beneath it, that looks and smells real similar. We just say Jesus more. And we create this subculture that goes right under culture. And, and most often when this happens, what's created is actually sub. Uh, in every way. So when the world encounters the church, what is the world encountering when they see the church? What they're encountering is a subversion of themselves. Except we don't have the resources the world has. So we're in the wrong game. The, the world looks and sees subs. So honestly, just in all honesty, this is the most frustrating option for me. I, I don't don't love it, Um, because I feel like what we're doing is we're nipping at the hills of culture, saying, give us our next trend. Give us our next direction, world, right? That's sub, and I don't love it. Um, Third option, though, let me show this, is what I'm going to call the anti-cultural option. This is fun. This is when we see the world, and it's scary, so we run for the hills, I even put this line here because we can barricade it sometimes. Like, don't you come over here, right? Um, we run from culture. We treat culture like COVID-19. It's contagious. Get away from it. Quarantine from the culture. We live in the woods. We grow our own food. I love growing our own food, not ripping on that. But you get what I'm saying. Avoid contact. At all possible. Avoid it. Whoop, break up. See, here we might have been, you know, green, and here we might have been a variation of green. Here, we're still full-blown white. We're just nowhere near the world. We're not even on their lane anymore. We're so against it. So in this option, the world looks at us and sees themselves. In this option, the world looks at us and sees a weird version of themselves. And in this option, the world looks at us and can't find us. We're just not even there. Like, they don't even see us, period. Um, Put them, all, put them all up here. 
Um, so when we look at these options, and we're faced with a culture like Pergamum, it's not exactly Jesus, we have a tendency probably in here, all of us have a tendency to run in one of these lanes, in one of these lanes in one way or another. And, and um, here's my thing. There's got to be a better way. There's got to be a better way to engage our culture. When we realize the propensity we have to compromise and we want to engage our whole, there has to be a better way. So here's what I want to do. I want to continue reading, and then we're going to come back to the better way, okay? Jesus says, verse 16, here's your start. Therefore, repent. We have to start here. See, repentance is acknowledging the reality of who we are, acknowledging our sin and the ways we have compromised. It's confessing it to the Lord. It's turning from our sin and from our compromise and turning back to our identity in Jesus. Jesus says, you've compromised, therefore repent. And he says, if you don't, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. I was taken back by this statement because of the pronouns. If you just look at this, it's weird. It says, I will come to you and war against them. There's all these different buckets. And so you look at this and you, you, you see a distinction between you versus them. Here in this church, the sad reality is that church members had become Christ's enemies. They were no longer a you, they were a them. Like and Jesus says here, I'm going to bring power. I'm going to unleash my awesome power among you. And that there are people among you, there are Balaam-like teachers in your presence. There are Nicolaitans in your presence. There are those who have compromised that are not truly part of the people of God. They might sit among you, talk among you, but they're not among you. And even though they operate under the banner of Jesus, he says, Jesus is going to bring the judgment upon them. It's the same language, by the way. We don't have time to look at this. There's so much here. But in Revelation 19, 15, Jesus uses the same language when Christ strikes down all unbelieving as, as he returns as judge and king. It's the same language here. Jesus calls them to repent and reminds him that he will be the perfect judge. That's what he's reminding them. So I want to bring us back to our options again. All right, so we have our three. So we come to the Lord. Um, we repent for where we have compromised. We, we pray that the Spirit illuminates, convicts. And so our question is, how should we respond to our culture? What should we do with the world around us? If we don't want to become it, modify it, or run from it, what do we do in our culture? I want to propose another way, and I, I don't own this word here, but go ahead and go to the next one, a countercultural option. I want to propose another way. So we're called to be in the world, but not of it. We're called to have a distinct identity. We are called to keep our distinct identity in and among the world while operating in the world. So unlike the first option here, we do not 
conform ourselves to the world. See, we're not, we're still the bathroom figure. We're in a green world. We've kept our color, but we're still in the green world. We're in the world, but we're not of the world. So instead of losing ourselves in the world, this option says through Christ, we remember our identity, we engage our world, and we show them a better way. Unlike the option that I don't like at all, the subcultural option where we Jesusify things, um, instead what we do is through Christ, we remember our identity, we engage our world, and we show them a better way. Instead of the third option and running for the hills, running away in fear and withdrawal, we, through Christ, remember our identity, we engage our world, and we show them a better way. It's counter-cultural. It's in the world and not of it. It is counter-cultural. And if we have compromised, I want to remind us of what this text says. Go ahead and go. Repent. Here's our call. Repent and show the world a better way. You can summarize everything down for us who are living in the tension of Pergamum. Repent and show the world a better way. Repent and show the world a better way. We won't be able to show the world a better way if we have lost our way. We won't be able to show the world a better way if we're just taking the world's way or running from the We need to show the world a better way. We're called to be countercultural, to repent and to show the world a better way. So here is, here's my question. As we look at this text, in what ways have you, let's make this personal first, have you compromised? One of my greatest fears for this weekend is that I was going to preach a message that maybe personified the American church and that we would have some element of pride going, yeah, we're not like that. Boom. We got our act together here. That's just pride. And I want to lay that down before Jesus and I want to ask that the Spirit search us first. So what are the ways maybe we have compromised? What are the ways that that you are currently compromised? And then as a community, have we compromised? Have we forgotten who we are? I pray, I pray that the Spirit will convict and open our eyes as his church. Um, And our verse actually ends with a reminder for us this morning. It ends in hope. In verse 17, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches, to the one who conquers. Listen to this. I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. So there's two promises here that Jesus gives them. One, hidden manna, and two, a white stone. Hidden manna, white stone. And I want to tell you, again, you can get real lost in study with this because there's a lot of different kind of, you know, nuances that people kind of think through when they're thinking about the manna and the the white stone. Uh, But I want to be real clear on what is clear. Boil it down. Um, Listen, hidden manna stands in stark contrast to the impure food that was sacrificed to idols in verse 14. 
This is pure communion with God through Jesus. Pure manna is set above what the world is offering. Talk about that white stone. The white stone stands in stark contrast to the sexual immorality that we saw in verse 14. Pure, it's white, it's purity. This is a complete acquittal in judgment. This church, in other words, this is the work of Jesus making us white as our restroom figure. This is justification. This is justification. So if we take all this in, and I'm going to close with this, the promise for us is communion and justification. Communion with Christ and justification in Christ. That is our promise. That is our promise. And I want to finish with a scripture. And this comes from 2 Corinthians this morning. You don't have to turn with me here. I want to read this over us. After telling the church kind of who we are in this text here in 2 Corinthians, Paul is telling us that we are the temple, the dwelling place of God. And he, in light of these promises that we've talked about, I want to read this over us. This is, this is 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 1. Since we have these promises... Beloved, church, brothers, sisters, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. This is our call. Thank you.